Chapter 23 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Andrea. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 23 Mars. The planets between us and the sun are by reason of their position less favorably placed for observation from the Earth. We now turn to the older planets and are almost bound to commence with Mars, though, as we have already seen, Mars is not quite the nearest at all times. The value of Mars in the history of astronomy is very great. It is impossible to conjecture how much longer the world would have had to wait for the laws of motion enunciated by Kepler but for the considerable eccentricity of the orbit of Mars, which was sufficient to preclude the possibility of a circular orbit. When Venus is nearest the Earth, it is only the dark hemisphere that is turned towards us, but with Mars nearest, it is the bright hemisphere that is seen, so that long spells of observation at night are frequently possible. It was once considered that the red color of Mars denoted a dense atmosphere corresponding to the foggy conditions under which the sun appears red to us, but this has long since been disproved. Observations of Mars and comparison stars for determination of solar parallax have already been noted, and we may now confine our attention to questions concerning Mars alone, which can in many cases, owing to the favorable conditions and the consequent concentration on it of a large number of observers, be answered with more definiteness than is the case with any other planet. There is none of the doubt that at one time existed in the case of Mercury, and to some extent still exists in that of Venus, as to whether we can see permanent markings from which to deduce the rotation period. This was found with considerable accuracy to be twenty-four and two-thirds hours by Hooke and Cassini in the seventeenth century, and some fifty years later, Moraldi noted the polar caps, subsequently explained by Herschel, to be actual frozen precipitations, inasmuch as they alternately increased and diminished in extent with the progress of the Martian seasons. It is true that Schroeder and some of his contemporaries denied the reality of the surface markings, alleging that they were merely cloud effects. But the steady improvement of optical power in the 19th century has enabled successive observers to indicate markings with such confidence that identifications have been made with the very oldest markings on record, and maps differing 30 years or more in date show practically the same features. With a range of observations extending beyond two centuries, even an error of a tenth of a second in the received rotation period is inadmissible. Professor Bakusen of Leyden from a comparison of observations from Hoyens to Schiaparelli, gives the period as 24 hours, 37 minutes, 22.66 seconds, an error of one-tenth of a second, which corresponds to more than two hours in the interval between the first and last observation, being practically impossible. Many independent pieces of evidence accumulated in the last century overthrow the notion that the redness of Mars was due to atmospheric absorption. A star occulted in 1822 
was observed by Sir J. Herschel's friend South to disappear sharply, and soon afterwards Herschel ascribed the color to soil. Another argument adduced by Dawes was that the red color was deeper in the center instead of at the edges. Yet another was the whiteness of the polar caps adduced by Higgins. Theory, moreover, based on the relative effects of gravitation, points to the probability of Mars, a body much smaller than the Earth, having an atmosphere very little more than one-seventh as dense as ours. Perhaps the strongest argument of all is the fact that, in general, details of the surface of Mars can be seen, though clouds or vapors of a similar kind are often noted also. Were the atmosphere of Mars as dense as ours, it is known, from Langley's bolometric observations, that 40% of the sun's vertical rays would not reach the surface of Mars, that even white sandstone would not reflect a quarter of the remainder, and that probably another 40% of what was left would be lost in its passage out again. So probably less than 10% of the light would reach the Earth's atmosphere. At the same time, the light reflected from the cloudy atmosphere of Mars would be much brighter in proportion. So it is practically certain that no surface detail of Mars would be seen, except in the vaguest manner, but for the great tenuity of its atmosphere compared with ours. The spectroscope, in recent years, shows an almost total absence of water absorption, though traces have been noted by Huggins and Vogel. This feature, though partly to be expected on account of the smallness of absorption due to so slight an atmosphere, it is also regarded as evidence of a considerable lack of water on Mars altogether. The melting of the polar caps, which sometimes is complete, a very different state of things to that which obtains on the Earth, seems to point to a temperature far higher than the theoretical mean temperature, some 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, according to Christensen. But it has been freely surmised that the polar caps are not of snow, but of solid carbonic acid with a much lower melting point. If so, not only would the one anomaly be plausibly explained, but also the similar one, of the apparent absence of frost beyond the polar regions at all times, for once more we can appeal to the investigators of solar radiation, of whom Angstrom finds a very high value for the heat absorption of carbonic acid gas. It would seem possible that the so-called theoretical temperature, deduced from the distance and albedo of Mars, is absolutely unreliable and that owing to the relative preponderance of carbonic acid instead of water vapor, Mars may retain comparatively more heat than the Earth, but we shall note further suggestions bearing on the comparative dryness of the planet. Among the many careful delineators of the features discernible on the very small disk, which only at favorable oppositions, occurring about once in fifteen years, reaches an apparent diameter nearly one-seventieth part of that of the sun or moon, the first associated with an important discovery in more recent times was Schiaparelli, who in 1877 discovered what have ever since been called canals. The Italian word really means channels. A network of more or less straight divisions, extending from sea to sea, 
across what has been regarded as continents, but which might now be considered islands. The erroneous use of the word canal gave rise to conjecture that the divisions were actual irrigation canals by which the melting of the polar caps was made available for the spread of vegetation. The size, however, some of them being three or four thousand miles long and about sixty miles wide, seemed conclusive against this hypothesis. In the winter of 1881 to 82, the planet, though further off, was much higher in the sky for observers in the northern hemisphere. And Schiaparelli made the astonishing discovery that many of the canals were double, a companion running parallel at a distance varying from 200 to 400 miles. Much ingenuity has been applied to the explanation of this phenomenon, either as an illusion or a reality. It has been attributed to refraction or some kindred optical cause. Professor Lowell has written a celebrated book on Mars, strongly supporting the theory of the canals being artificial irrigation works, and maintaining, moreover, that the reddish and gray-green regions, so far from being simply land and water, or continents and seas, are land only, divided into deserts and tracts of vegetation. To the theory that the seas are not water comes supporting evidence from Professor Bernard with the Great Lick Telescope, his observations in great detail being incompatible with the idea of a large expanse of water. The favorable opposition of 1892 was principally famous for the great interest evoked by the fantastic idea eagerly taken up in the press that certain bright clouds noted in the atmosphere of Mars were actual signals from Mars to the Earth. In careful observations, especially at Arequipa in the southern hemisphere, where the favorable oppositions are most deserving of their name, confirm the previous impression that the outlines are only in the main permanent, but that changes considered seasonal do considerably vary the contour of the various districts. So that either there are extensive inundations or luxuriant tropical growth, according as the color be taken to denote sea or vegetation, it is probable that the opposition of 1907 will see a renewal of interest in those matters, especially in the southern hemisphere. The Cape is now supplied with a fine instrument, and there is talk of one being provided for the Transvaal, although there is hardly time for that before the opposition. Quite recently, another book from Professor Lowell emphasizes still more strongly his conviction that the absurd phenomena demand polar caps of snow, not carbonic acid. Inasmuch as he maintains the visibility of a fringe of liquid during the melting, whereas ordinarily carbonic acid goes straight from solid to gaseous form. He insists also that everything apparently anomalous in the drawings made at his observatory is a natural consequence of the shortage of water on the planet, which is in a far more advanced stage of development than the Earth, which is also said to show symptoms of a gradual drying up. So that on the one hand, necessity has driven the assumed Martians to construct elaborate irrigation works in order to utilize to the full the scanty supply of water. And on the other, the absence of mountains and the greatly diminished effect of gravity 
have enormously lessened the labor involved in the necessary trenching. When we remember the tenuity of the Martian atmosphere, we might fairly object to the assumption that the supposed inhabitants would get the full benefit of the economy of power alleged, as their vital energy, an important factor in the question, would be probably low. In fact, so far as the argument depends on terrestrial and human analogy, the assumptions involved are so great that Professor Lau's very plausible explanation can hardly be called convincing. This is especially the case since practically the whole of the elaboration of the details, the close network of markings crossing not only the deserts, but also the vegetation, the oases at the points of intersection, and other phenomena dealt with at length in his book, depend on drawings made at his own observatory by his own staff. And it is difficult for those who have looked in vain with different instruments under different conditions to admit the full deductions at once to be drawn from their failure and his success. Admitting his evidence, his deductions as to intelligent beings on Mars, who can not only construct thousands of miles, in fact hundreds of thousands of miles, of great canals at least a mile wide, but can also force water to fill them against its natural inclination, are scarcely, if at all, credible. It is, therefore, easier to doubt the reality of the evidence, elsewhere unsupported, except in some of the more conspicuous features, though this attitude is more human than logical. It is well known that a trained observer, who knows by experience exactly what he is looking for, will see with comparative ease what an average person entirely fails to distinguish. But it is also beyond question that observers of supposed trustworthiness have recorded things as seen which have had no real existence, but which they expected to see. In other words, personal bias counts for something, and whether the observation be made by the man who believes, or by one of his staff who is told what to expect, it will be regarded with skepticism by the man who does not believe. And on this subject, we may note two interesting experiments. Some time ago, at Greenwich Hospital School, in accordance with the suggestion made by E.W. Mounder of the Royal Observatory, a number of boys at different distances were set to copy what they could see of a design similar to a vague map of Mars, without any lines joining the salient features, none of the boys having any previous knowledge of the subject and producing a striking result. Those near the board practically reproduced the design. Those far off only imperfectly did the same. But some at intermediate distances did actually put in, as visible to them, lines resembling the famous markings on Mars. This experiment, though as Professor Lowell says, it does not prove him to be mistaken, at any rate shows how he might be mistaken, and has shaken the convictions of some planetary observers. The other experiment was carried out by Mr. Lampland, one of Lowell's assistants, in 1905, and was a successful attempt to photograph a doubled canal. It unfortunately happens that the particular canal photographed, being naturally the widest pair, was generally regarded by Lowell himself as not a normal case, and certainly the distance between the two parallel lines, 
wide enough to enclose Great Britain between them, seems decidedly against their close association. On such a subject, we may well wait for further illumination before attempting to dogmatize. The opposition of 1877 was also marked by the discovery made by Asaph Hall with the great Washington Equatorial of two small satellites attending Mars. It is curious that at least two writers of romance, Cyrano de Bergerac and Dean Swift, should have predicted this many years before, the latter giving an astonishingly accurate guess as to their motions, so nearly accurate indeed as to raise in some minds a suggestion as to the possibility of the Dean of St. Patrick's having actually observed the satellites on the sly and computed the motion of one of them. The suggestion is hopelessly impossible, having regard to the poor telescopic power then available, even granting that Swift's peculiar temperament might have accounted for his deliberate suppression of the discovery, or rather for his publishing it in such a way that no one would suspect the truth, though he would at any time be able to prove priority, a device similar to the anagrams of Galileo and others. These satellites, called Deimos and Phobos, are very small, probably not more than ten miles in diameter, and their motions, to anyone familiar with that of her own moon, quite disconcerting. Deimos, the older one, revolves about Mars in a rather more than thirty hours, so that it moves slowly across the sky, taking more than two Martian days from rising to setting. Phobos, meanwhile, with a period of less than eight hours, hurries round in the opposite direction, rising in the west about twice a day. Both being so small, however, they are inconspicuous even from the surface of Mars, and Phobos is too near the planet to be even visible from the polar regions. To the hypothetical Martian astronomers, these little objects might have been of untold value in simplifying the problems and testing the theorems of celestial mechanics. An absurd rumor, probably due to an imaginative journalist, that these satellites showed phases as they revolved round Mars, may have aggravated the skepticism in some quarters towards Lowell Observatory announcements. End of chapter 23